I don't care what the diagnosis is. Just help me. Fine. Call it bipolar. I don't care what you call it. Help me. Help me to want to be alive. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. We certainly don't talk about it enough. When we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. Huge thanks to all of my guests who have joined me here since we launched in July of 2020 and everybody who listens. Thank you. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. Check the show notes for other ways you can reach out to us as well as ways you can support and or sponsor this podcast. We do want to reach more people in more places so they can feel, hopefully, a little less shitty and a little less alone. Finally, we are talking about suicide on this podcast, as the title suggests, so please take that into account before or as you listen. But I do hope you listen, because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Chantel. Chantel lives in Minnesota, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Chantal, how are you? Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Chantel in Minnesota. Correct. And we have been trading messages for some time. Mm-hmm. And are you comfortable sharing your current situation? Because um, it's not ideal, correct? Right. Correct. You got that right. I was forced into another uh, month-long hospital stay. Um, I had a mental health episode and was asked to leave the building I live in. So now I'm stuck in the homeless cycle again. I have a housing voucher, but everything gets put on hold when you're hospitalized. So my caddy waiver that I had, everything, you have to like reapply for everything. And it's a nightmare. It's so broken being criminalized. I mean, feeling like a criminal when you're held against your will, there's nothing more degrading than another counterproductive force feed you more pharmaceuticals, stay in the hospital. It's sticky. For sure. I feel like you just said several things there that each of them alone could be long conversations, right? (laughs) From what we've talked about, and I want to hear more about, this isn't something that just popped up in the last few weeks. This has been something you've been dealing with for a long time. Yep. Covers a lot of ground. Let's start with your your first suicide attempt and what leads up to that. We're not dilly-dallying here, Chantel, right? I was 13 years old when I overdosed. The first, Mm. I would say, attempt, I literally read the back of an Advil bottle and it said, do not exceed eight. So I took nine and legitimately thought I wouldn't wake up. That obviously wasn't the case, didn't work. And I I didn't really tell anyone about that. And then it was about a month later when I emptied the medicine cabinet. So 13 years old, you tried twice. Yep. Right. Where are you in Minnesota at the time? Yep. Yep. I was actually just moved, transferred schools in the middle of the school year. And so I was, I'm originally from up north, just a small town and um, got moved down to the metro area in the middle of the school year. And I I really struggled 
being in, uh, I was severely obese. Yeah, I was kind of a big fish in a little pond and then kind of being thrown in a ginormous ocean and you're just a, you know, just a little goldfish trying to find your way. And I was really struggling. Did you have anybody in your life who, who you could talk to support type thing? At the time, it was um, my mom was working evenings, so it was me and my sisters, and I'm the oldest, so I was kind of in charge, you know, mm. a lot. We had a couple family members that lived nearby, but she was just doing what she had to do to get us out of poverty. You know, she got a job down here, and then my dad kind of stepped up to the plate after my suicide attempt and decided maybe it'd be best if we moved home, and uh, so that's what we did. There's a lot of things going on there, obviously, a lot of things. Mm-hmm. When those two attempts, you, I don't know if this is the right way to frame it, but my show, my words, they don't work. You did not succeed in ending your life. That's a given. No surprises there. We're talking. Yep, exactly. Like how does, so I always wonder how does somebody who wants to end their life or tries to end their life a couple of times in your case, and you wake up, I don't know if this is a myth, but things aren't going to magically get better. You're still waking up. You're still living in poverty. You still have weight stuff you're still it's all there it's been it's been a minute since that happened but you still got to get up go to school do your thing do your chores help your sisters or your brothers how do you how do you manage that well um at the time i was placed in the adolescent psych ward that it was absolutely terrifying horrific experience and i just begged my mom to please let me come home you know that i was sorry she was mad she was like how dare you do this to your sisters Mm. And so at that point, I kind of just sucked in my breath. I have to understand that they have their own feelings around my mental health as well. In hindsight, I can say, you know, she did the best she could, but it wasn't exactly like a warm, welcoming home. I, it was like, uh, they were mad. They were pissed. You, you feel, as, as we're talking today, that they had a right to be pissed. I go back and forth. You know, they are entitled to their feelings no matter what. Sure. So bottom line. Anger is a secondary emotion, you know, that's fear of me doing this again, of me not being okay. And I think, you know, my mom, you know, she got me in therapy, first experience with uh, head meds, as I call them, uh, Prozac. Ultimately, we ended up moving back home with my dad. Not the ideal solution. I don't think it was necessarily my mom's choice. He kind of brought it up without talking to her first. And when I had that option on the table, I was my heart was set. I was going home come hell or high water. And my mom refused to separate us three girls. So we all three moved in with my dad, who was a very part-time dad. Overnight, he's taking on three teenage girls. And uh, wow. And so yeah. obviously your, your parents are split. Yep. Yep. Wow. They're actually both deceased now. Lost my dad in 2020 to non-Hodgkin's and my mom in 2013 to lung cancer. Well, given what you shared about just what you've shared thus far, this is a question I don't think I've ever asked. Are you surprised you outlived them? I don't know. Wow. No, I'm not. I mean, I um, had a couple other attempts along the way and, or plans. And, oh, we're gonna get. We're gonna get to that, Chantel. Don't worry. Oh boy. <laughs> well, you don't. Again, you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. No, I'm. I'm. I'm an open book. I think transparency is a way to take away the power of those uh, mental illnesses, you know, those negative thought sets and the toxicity of being, yeah. keeping your inner dialogue negative and yeah. you know, treating yourself compassionately. What you said, a couple of things really stood out to me, not really stood out per se, but I was like, whoa, the idea that 
your mom was pissed, but you're also acknowledging, and this isn't therapy here, just to be clear. I mean, I'm trust me, you don't want therapy from this fucking bald guy. <laughs> but and I'm also not a therapist. And that's not why we're here. But no, it just it strikes me that you have this understanding, if that's the right word, of she did the best she could. The other thing, and I wonder what this does to a 13-year-old, is to have to be in a place that is so horrific, uh, specifically that uh, psych ward or whatever we're calling it, to have to beg, number one, to have to beg to get out. What does that do to a kid? And two, to have to apologize for what you've done. You know, I remember her sitting at the foot of the bed in the hospital and the doctor asking me, you know, did you want to die? This is after having my stomach pumped, you know, and I'm like, well, no shit, Sherlock. I mean, of course I wanted to die. And and as soon as I said yes, my mom just lost it. Like she cried like I've never seen her cry. And I instantly, I mean, it makes me emotional just thinking about it. I would never want to cause that pain to anyone. And uh, so I instantly just remorseful, you know. Yeah, sure, sure. I'd imagine most people that attempt to take their lives are not typically doing it to cause other people pain. Could that be a reason for some people? Sure, it might be. But I've done this for over two years, and I get the sense from everyone I've spoken to that that's not why they're doing it. Depression is like, you know, it's like being in a dark hole, and you can't see light anywhere. For a time being, I had to, I began living life for other people. I've always been sensitive or what other keywords are used to describe me. You know, I think that it all comes down to compassion and human beings and treating each other the way we deserve to be treated and the way we want to be treated. And But we know, Chantel, that often, like you said, you use the word criminalized and that when you try to take your life, I, I'm sure there are people out there, probably far more than I think, who approach that person or that act with compassion. I also think it's a fair statement to say there's a lot that don't. Correct. Yeah. Like a ticking time bomb is how I feel. You know, that's why it's such a shameful thing to carry around and why I wanted to do this podcast too, is, is the more we talk about it, the less power it has. And the stigma is real. I mean, the stigma within family systems, within the criminal system. I'm in Minnesota, supposedly one of the best states for mental health and clearly a flawed system. Tells you what it might be like in other states. Wow, right? Yeah, I, that's what I said. I'd hate to see the worst if I'm <laughs> living in the best, you know? <laughs> yeah, because I stayed for about a week at the UNC Psych Center and I was like, oh, it's much better than that other place, you know, in that other county. I'm like, well, I sure <laughs> as shit don't want to be living in yeah. that <laughs> Right. Because if this is the best you have, we have a problem, like a serious problem. But of course, those words don't typically land on people's ears well because they sort of roll their eyes, right? And they're sort of saying like, well, any number of responses. I'm sure you've dealt with it all over the years. I- I'm just curious because I want to try to connect dots here. So you had two attempts at 13. You go to live with your dad. You're a teenager. How old are you when you attempt again? I had plans once when I was 25 and then once when I was 30. And then my mom gave me an ultimatum when I was 30 that um, it was get help or I'm getting it for you. So I got help, put myself through therapy on and off for seven years, did a lot of the inner work on myself and making sure I'm not contributing to the problems that I feel are the most pressing issues. You know, constantly feeling misunderstood and, and hopeless, just not having that desire to be alive. All right. So between 13 and 25, you finished school? I graduated high school. Yep. Okay. With, I went back to um, my hometown, graduated high school, um, went on to uh, college, 
and then transferred from St. Cloud State down to the U of M. I got a job at a casino and making good money and dropped out of college. Ooh, where was the casino? Treasure Island. Um, it's in Welch, Minnesota, or Red Wing. It was fun for a while, but another toxic environment, you know, no windows, no clocks, no sunlight, just feeding people's addictions, you know. Money, booze, etc. Yep. 25 and 30, you'd said that your mom gave you that ultimatum at 30. So she knew about your plans or she just knew you were you weren't doing well? Um, she knew about my plan. How did she know about that? Um, I'm not sure how people found out. I can't really recall. I was drinking heavily at, at that time period in my life, you know, you- self-medicating with anything I could get my hands on, really. Yeah. You know, that's when I started learning how to advocate for myself. You know, I had a shrink, you know, they tried diagnosing me bipolar and put me on lithium and all I did was cry. All I could do was weep. And I was like, this is not the med for me, you know, and then I had an, another, uh, a new shrink, a new therapist, I mean, and she helped me kind of see that, you know, I am entitled to be treated fairly and I do have a say in what goes in my body. Yeah, I was thinking when you were crying or you were trying to communicate that lithium is not for you, how many people at least gave you a minute or two to listen? I'm betting very few. Exactly. You don't know what's best for you. No, of course not. It's worth a listen. Jeez, come on. I mean, at a, at a minimum, a listen. Like this is in their, this is in this person's body. Lithium is a very strong drug. And I know for some people, it saves their life. So let's not, I mean, I'm just, that's what I've heard. But, I'm sure for a lot of people, it's not the right fucking drug. Right. And there are some major side effects to lithium. Hardcore, life-changing side effects. Yep. When you're 25, do you know what prevented you from trying? Because you know when you're planning, you're moving closer and you'd already have a couple of attempts, even though more than a decade goes by. What stopped you? Uh, guilt. Guilt and fear. Guilt of what? Guilt of feeling bad in the first place. You know, I always said, like, if there was a way to just remove me from the world without hurting anyone else, that option I would have elected several times over. At 25, at 30 and other times? Yeah. I mean, the my most recent, you know, when I had a plan, I literally bought the Tylenol and that was uh, in 2020. Fear stopped me dead in my tracks. Fear of not succeeding. Waking up, being alive, maybe doing some damage, maybe permanent. Right. And I was not messing around. You learn some tricks of the trade along the way. So it reminds me of people in jail who learn to be better criminals. So when 25 and 30, is it similar? Like you said, the guilt and the fear, you got close, you plan, you stop. Yeah. Went to Canvas Health. That's when things turned around. I, that's when I started learning how to love myself. And I think that that was a game changer for me. You know, learning that I'm worthy, I'm enough people can't meet me where I'm at, then they're not necessarily my people. How old were you when that process sort of started? 31. When I was 31, I had that attempt. And then I, like I said, I was at Canvas Health. They were kind of a integral part of my healing at the time. And, and just, mm-hmm. I was finally like, I don't care what the diagnosis is. Just help me, you know, yeah. fine. Call it bipolar. I don't care what you call it. Help me. Help me to want to be alive. You went to this place. They helped you. And you said, just help me want to be alive. I don't give a shit about the diagnosis. In 2020, if I heard you correctly, there was number, another almost attempt. I was heartbroken. I was at the time stuck in the system um, and living in a sober house. 
I was forced into treatment because I didn't have anywhere else to go. So after 30 days of inpatient treatment for drugs and alcohol, literally for cannabis use. Wow. Yeah. And to this day, it's the only thing that helps everything. (laughs) And And so why wouldn't you do it? Of course. Right. That's to me is a sign of actually someone who's somewhat healthy. I get, I I know some people will push back there because they'll say, well, Sean, yeah, I mean, heroin makes people feel better, but it's a problem. And I would say, I get it. It's a problem. But if it helps someone feel better who never feels well, it's a pretty logical, rational thing to do. I think if you've never been in the space of feeling really crappy, particularly for an extended period of time, you cannot understand this. No, there's a reason I, you know, I've always gravitated towards that ever since I was 13, that, you know, after I got home from that psych ward. So when you were 13 and you, you had that incident, you started smoking marijuana. I was introduced to it. Yep. And it helped. It did. And then I was a periodic smoker. I mean, in high school and um, through college and that 10 months in 2020 in a sober house, 10 months, I, I was waiting for housing. I had this bridges housing voucher and the lack of housing is, I mean, they, they don't care where they put you. My family, you know, tough love is what Mm. the opposite of what I need. I don't know. Does anybody need that? Uh, I'm with you. I say no, but you know, (laughs) I'm a soul who believes in compassion and universal consciousness. It sounds like from the, the bulk of your life, adult life, have you been sort of in and out of the quote system? 2017 is when I was reintroduced to the mental health system. Yeah. So how long was it between, and I'm using the word system sort of broadly here, where you weren't in the system? Did you, did you have like a, a long stretch there? Well, just when I was going to therapy with Canvas Health and then I was taking, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals, I at the time had a painkiller dependent surgery that went horribly wrong and ended up uh, laid up for like a year. It's kind of a nightmare. After that was my attempt when my mom gave me the ultimatum. And then after going through therapy, you know, my mom said something once she said something like, you know, or I was like, what are the odds? The problem is everyone else and not me. Good question. You know, and I'm like, you're right. So I decided I'm going to do the work and I put my, you know, I went to therapy. I continued therapy. I, I wanted to make sure I wasn't contributing to the negativity of my own mind. And that's when I started pulling my inner dialogue outer, you know, and I started removing negativity from my spoken language. Words I would say. I would I could rearrange anything and spit it back in a positive way. And wow. Did that help? Absolutely. It was a game changer for me. I mean, it's what keeps me going. It keeps me grounded, knowing that there's a love or a lesson in every encounter. Every, everyone who crossed my path, every, everything I'm going through is for a reason. And if the only reason I can find right now is to do stuff like this, you know, to talk about it mm-hmm. so that people aren't treating others poorly. It's everybody lifted each other up and energy healing, spirituality. I mean, those are the things that save my life. Those are the things that I clutch to now when I'm in this mental health facility where I could honestly be teaching the groups better than they're being taught. You know, I just losing my apartment in a disabled adult building, you know, riding out the system and getting the help and, and then to have it yanked away because I had a mental health episode. (laughs) Yeah. It defies not only logic, but it defies 
just basic decency. Man, it's so fucked up. It's just, it's a dangerous position to be in. Be- feeling and being locked up against your will is counterproductive in so many ways that, I mean, the shame alone from being locked in, I don't care if it's, I mean, this is glorified jail where I'm at right now. I'm in glorified jail. How many times do you slide from the mental health system over into the criminal side, you know, yep. and you're misunderstood. And once you're labeled and branded and the yep. tactics police use, I mean, come on. And then we make it really hard for people to get back. Whatever That's where I'm at right now. Just waiting, you know, and every day that ticks by here, I'm like, that's one less day I have, you know, I'm just shuffled around. Like I've been in the community setting. I had my apartment for about 14 months. And other than that, I've been since COVID started, just shuffled around. I was in a forest hospital stay when my dad died, supposed to be there for him. And uh, it's just, it's so hard not to feel like a criminal, mm-hmm. something I didn't choose. And I, I do the best I can. And, and I just, I don't know. I know I'm not alone in feeling misunderstood, you know? Right. How many hospital stays have you had? Oh God, I've lost count now. Long ones, like more than a month, three. And it, it's infuriating that my last one, just two months ago here, I mean, you get, forced into the hospital and they wouldn't let me, you're not allowed to see your therapist, something about billing. And I'm like, this, this is a mental health unit. And I can't, all it's, it is is treating acute symptoms and medicating you until you're a zombified, you know, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And then they find you your next holding cell. In the meantime, it's like, go back to go, go back to start. Just not having employers that understand mental health, not just the fact that it's not universally called mental health instead of mental illness anymore. The fact that there's, I mean, there needs to be a new language to bridge spirituality and psychology. Good luck with that, Chantel. I know, right? (laughs) Especially in the West. I mean, we are weirdly attracted or addicted to, you know, uh, whatever, surgery and fixing. And you just, you just wonder, like, I don't know this to be true, but I mean, I I don't have enough information, but you wonder who is pulling the strings here, right? Who, who, Who are making these decisions? And we know some of it, and perhaps a good portion of it is being influenced by money. Yeah. And you're just like, come on, you got to be kidding me. I mean, that's criminal. Yeah. These 10 day homeless shelters are $1,000 a day filled to my health insurance. $1,000 a day. Do you know how much housing I could get for, I mean, the 10 days that you're in a temporary homeless shelter, that's $10,000 paid by medical assistance. That money could be so much better spent in so many, I mean, we're just, the mental health field is spread so thin right now. I'm just trying to get case management services and it's brutal. <laughs> it's icky. It's icky. Yeah. So you had that attempt or no, not, not attempt, but you had a not so long ago, almost attempt. Yeah. Bought the Tylenol. Do you, as we speak right now, want to be alive? I do. Mm. I do want to be alive. I, I also want the system to work better. (laughs) It wears on you, man. It wears on you. And to not be able to use marijuana right now. And it's Mm. scary. It's scary because I know that those ideations creep back up, you Mm. know, when you're feeling criminalized and shameful subconsciously and you're, you don't have a choice. I, I want to keep going. I want I want housing, you know, and just the hierarchy of needs and yes, a hundred percent. Oh man. And basic stuff. You can never, 
yeah, it literally it's being stuck. Yeah, exactly. You just need yep. basic stuff. And if you don't have it, yeah, I'm on a hamster wheel right now is what it feels like. You know, I'm just buying time. And the more time that takes by is the less time I have, you know, before I have to pack up what I can carry and move to the next spot. Right. I always wonder how many people, who, who do you have in your life to talk to? That not only, no, and to be clear, when I say that, I don't mean somebody who would be like willing to listen with a slight eye roll. I mean, really, that you'd be like, all right, I feel better after talking to this person. The funny part is, I meet people in psych wards. Some of the coolest people I've met have been temporary passing. We're in the same setting and we yep. find solace in each other. For me, it's being able to, what makes me feel good now is helping others. I just, I know that I'm here for a reason and. I have to go through this and I have to be vocal about it. I have to be an advocate. I have to be a voice for people that don't have a voice. No matter what, I refuse to let the demons take over. I don't, my negative thoughts, I, I allow them. I write them down. I burn the paper. I, I just think like, I'm thankful for spirituality and like energy healing. Reiki healing sessions have changed my life. I'm really, yeah. Game changer for real. Some people would, 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 would be like, what? What? Reiki? Come on. I didn't think that was even a real thing. They would be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you are wrong. <laughs> wow. All right. I Maybe I should check that out. I need to do some what would be considered sort of alternative stuff for sure. That might yeah. be one path. Yeah. I think uh, Mother Nature would take care of most things, you know, if it were socially acceptable to walk around barefoot and not be uh, stopped by the police that drive by. If people were a little more compassionate. You're, you're so right about that. I have to say, mm-hmm. and I don't think a lot of people get it. I'm sure some do, but I don't, I don't, I think they're still like a snicker at that. Mm-hmm. There'll, there'll be some people that need some harder core care that being barefoot is not going to be enough. Sure. Right. Yeah. But I mean, we're not stupid here, but there's a lot of people. Well, when you said the thing about it, I don't know exactly if I got this right. Is it me or everybody around me? When you said that, I also think about the environment in general, right? Beyond the people, but like how we live and where we live and all those things that are required of us to provide for. A lot of it just, it's not a good match for certain people. So those that it matches well with, they tend to do well and thrive, but I don't get it. Yeah, right. (laughs) I'm not sure what the point of all that was, but. I don't think that makes you ill necessarily that you're not adapting to these things. Isn't in my, the way I think of being ill, you could argue someone not being able to adapt to their environment or their culture or society's sort of standards is not well, but I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like I've done a lot of work on myself and to a point where like, okay, I no longer think I'm the problem. I honestly am like, somebody thinks I'm a problem. Well, why is that? I think it's judgmental ideations of what you want me to do, what you think I'm capable of, but they're not me. They don't understand that just to feel worthwhile, just to feel appreciated Mm -hmm. and respected where I'm at. I'm thankful for my sisters, their boundaries, but at the same time, I need them in my life. We need more than just it's all about community. It's about coming together and lifting each other up and to not feel guilty for having thoughts. If I wasn't treated like a ticking time bomb for bringing up suicidal ideation, 
or attempts or feelings or, you know, I'm, I did an article once for the Pioneer Press about mental health. And I, mm. I was quoted saying family isn't always your best resource. And I kind of got some flack for that a little, I feel like I offended family members. Yeah. I would just want to correct myself and say, you know, I, I didn't say they're, they were the worst, but I, there needs to be a professional first, you know, somebody who can be objective and listen without getting confused by their anger or fear that, or worry that I'm not okay. Family, the more understanding they are, the better. And my sisters are, are really good about that. Like they don't hold grudges. They are there for me when, when I'm at the bottom. They do whatever they can within healthy boundaries to help. What's an unhealthy boundary? Well, letting me live there, for instance, if okay. I let me stay with them. It crosses lines and it, they want me to be able to do this on my own. Can I ask you a question about that? Mm-hmm. So are, are their lives a little different than yours? Yes. They're both married and each have four kids. And I'm single, uh, no kids. Yeah. Single, no kids. All right. I, I'm going to say this. I'm trying to be sensitive or careful with my words. Who created that boundary? Them. I was staying with them, um, rotating, you know, a week at each sister's house. Got it. But that's their family. That's their life. I understand and respect that boundary. And, yeah. And it's not their fault that I'm the way I am. And it's not my fault that they're the way they are. And everybody, when push comes to shove, they have always been there for me when I, when I am at my lowest. I'm grateful for that. Yeah. If I'm thinking about your sisters, I'm thinking about your parents and other people in your life. How many people do you know, if you can recall, like how many people know that you tried to end your life? The most recent attempt, very few. I don't know that anybody knew that I purchased the Tylenol. I did get caught. <laughs> caught. One of my um, girls that lived in the sober house with me, she was the phone keeper. We had to turn our phones in at night and uh, she saw in my Google search how many Tylenol would it take. And, and uh, Just to be clear, did you try or was it an almost attempt? It was an almost, more than a plan. Was the difference in you trying and not trying that woman? Very well could have been. I'm sad to say she passed away this last month from an overdose. Her funeral last week, and it just made me realize how important it is to do stuff like this. To take away the power of these mental health conditions that can be just debilitating. Yeah. And when was that? You said 2020? Yep. I'm doing the best I can. It's it's not always a struggle. I, I really do. And this has got me in kicked out of multiple places, but I try to find the joy in every day. Mm-hmm. Every day I try to find something to be joyful about. And I live joyfully no matter where I am or what I'm doing. And, and that sometimes isn't received well. Really? By whom? By the naysayers. I'm not supposed to be enjoying this. The attitude, it's unspoken, of course, but... Well, how are you supposed to be? Crying. You know, that's why I say I feel like major depressive disorder is one that I can knock off the list. I mean, I feel like when my living conditions get back to this place, I'm more anger. It's, it's anger now when they take me because I've been in therapy this whole time to avoid forced hospitalization because they're so counterproductive. They're just so damaging to my self-esteem, to my life. I mean, a month at the hospital two months ago and I lost my apartment and I'm now back in the homeless pool and the police are like, so undertrained in their human beings just because they wear uniforms does not make them professional. And I've right. had more than my fair share of negative encounters with the law. Mm-hmm. All it takes is those cherries behind me and I'm triggered. I have to sit there and like, you know, block my peripheral vision and 
try to articulate my way through it and tell my brain to stay calm because I've been charged with a DUI, even though I blew zeros. I mean, he describes PTSD perfectly, but fails to disclose the fact that the first thing I did was disclose. I have PTSD triggered by uniformed officers. And he somehow took offense to that. I mean, of course, of course. Yeah, right. Yeah. We're not going to get into the Minnesota police on this show, but <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Okay. That brings up a lot of stuff. Yes. How many people know that you, you're talking to me? I would say not many. Right. But you're clearly wanting to share what you've gone through about your life. To be able to describe depression and to help people who have lost family members to suicide be able to understand that it's not something anybody chooses. Nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to be depressed today. So many issues, you know, my ACEs scores through the roof. Like, you know, I, I want to beat the odds. I want to live and I want to want to live. And I, I just want the opportunity to be in a supportive environment. Riding out the system at this point is, ugh, is what scares me. Like the housing crisis, people are not, you know, Minnesota supposed to be so compassionate. And I just want to live in Colorado or somewhere where I'm not a criminal for using marijuana. When you're, when you're the black sheep, it's like people talk around you. They don't talk to you. They talk about you and they don't meet you where you're at. If I'm in a loving environment, I promise you I'm going to excel. The criminal system that I'm afraid of, I'm gradually, you know, charges are piling up. Now they're doing a rule 20 to see whether or not I'm competent. And it's like, well, I'm stable and medicated right now. But what they don't understand is being stuck in this system is debilitating. It is not beneficial to my mental health and well-being. Right. The places that are supposed to help are a major part of the problem. Like you're literally creating, like when I was in the hospital, I remember that truly the main thing that flipped me out was being in the hospital the way I was being treated. Yep, exactly. And then yep. you're assessing me. Are, are we going to keep you here longer? Well, what are you assessing? The way you're behaving. And I'm in an inhumane place. So you're when I hear myself on the podcast doing this, I'm like, Sean, no, nobody wants to hear your little rant here, but we cannot not talk about the fact that they're getting paid a lot of money. You cannot have that be part of the conversation. There's got to be a better way. There, that's yeah. all I know. With the amount of money that $10,000 for 10 days in a homeless shelter, $10,000. But it feels like to me that that's just money getting passed from one rich person or one rich group of people to another. Yep. That's what that is. Yep. That's insurance fraud or not fraud. That's insurance perpetuating the cycle for pharmaceutical companies. It's, it seems like a vet. broken doesn't even seem close to the right word to me. It, it feels more, I don't know what the word is, like perverse and repugnant. Right. It's ass backwards. What are, if any, some myths or misconceptions? And in your case, look, we could talk about suicide, mental health, the criminal justice system, addiction. There's a few things we could tackle, but is there one or two that stands out to that you want to say, no, 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 no. My major reason for doing this is the fact that I was 13 and I tried to kill myself. Yeah. The fact that there, there's an epidemic in this country, adolescents that don't want to be alive, we have got to seriously take a look at ourselves and how we are treating other human beings. How, mm -hmm. What are we teaching at home that I was lucky in that department? My mom I mean, she raised us to never, ever make fun of somebody for something they cannot help. And I feel like it's my job to use my voice. I have it for a reason. And I just want people to treat everybody the way you want to be treated. It's like those golden rules we learn in kindergarten. We learn them in kindergarten for a reason. There's a reason I'd rather hang out with kids all day. 
I just wish more people understood or took the time to learn how to meet people where they're at and, and how to sit with people with and have difficult conversations. Do it. It it takes away the power of those big roadblocks. When you're supported and loved and lifted up, it's possible to achieve anything. I'm criminalized in this mental health facility that I'm at right now where I can't even bring a guest into my room. I'm a 43-year-old woman. I'm not allowed to do grown-up things. This is impossible for my brain not to be ashamed. I'm I'm at bottom again, the outside looking in. My brain, my mind, my thoughts are not bottomed out, but I'm fearful. Without this medical marijuana license, I, I mean, they've got a civil commitment on me, the region's hospital. I have to go see a judge to get my freedom back. Right. And I imagine also you'd said something about like, it would be nice to live in a state like Colorado where you could have that, but chances are, and I might be wrong here, you don't have the resources to just go up and do that right now and live and move. There's other things holding you back. So the, these ideas, people float. It's like, but in re- realistically, that's or practically, that's for many people. It's just not really an option for many people. It's not an option. Everything takes money, and I'm sorry, but uh, when's the last time the poverty limits have been? I mean, the cost of milk keeps going up. Yeah, exactly, and it's impossible to survive off of GA and I'm applied for social security disability denied. I'm competent and I can work and I want to work, but you're not allowed to while you're in this facility. And, you know, how can you get a job without knowing where you're going to live? And it it all comes down to that hierarchy of needs, knowing where your next meal is coming from and without having a roof over your head, you're, you have, you can't plan a day. You can't. Right. It's all survival. Yep, exactly. And survival mode is not meant to be long term. It's meant to save your life short yep. time in need. It is not meant to be you're not meant to stay there in that mode. No, that that is literally what causes all kinds of physical and or mental problems. Yep. And that's you when cannot, your stress starts manifesting yes. physically. Yep. Yes. You cannot yes. survive in that mode very long. You just can't do it. And eventually most people, there's a breaking point. What does that breaking point look like? You do harm to yourself. You do harm to others. Everybody's got that breaking point. A lot of people, they have, I think, enough of a cushion where it's unlikely they're going to reach that breaking point. And the cushion, from what it sounds like, is what you do not have at all. Right. It's so dangerous. And how do you heal in that space? They don't even have, you can't even open the windows. I'm sorry, but open the fucking windows. Let me get some fresh air in here and maybe we'll talk. But right now, this is just a... This is just a better decorated jail cell. This is punishment, no yes. matter what they call it. You know, and I'm trying to be grateful that I have a place to be, but I I keep wanting to go to that poor me side where, oh my God, if I just go over all the bad things that happen in such a short amount of time, like who wouldn't respond the way I responded? Yeah. If you're wondering where Chantel is, it doesn't look exactly like a jail cell, though. I've not been in jail, fortunately. But behind her is an ugly green wall. <laughs> yeah, with some I would say it's not necessarily designed for thriving. No, it's bearable. And there's a, I don't know what kind of painting that is. It looks like a th- something from nature. It's a little blurry. It's kind of, or it's, I don't know, it's probably like a mass produced piece of art. Is not conducive to healing. <laughs> Whoa, it's not conducive to a lot of things. Do you think you're going to make it to 50? Yes. Cool. I have eight nieces and nephews that need their auntie. I can't wait to see them grow up more and I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to miss anything more with my family than I already have. I've isolated myself. I've backed myself into a corner where everyone else was the enemy, me mm-hmm. against the world. And it's 
it's not beneficial. It's a tough road right there. Yeah. I have to start pulling out my tools, you know, the things you learn along the way, the opposite emotion and, and square breathing and yoga. I mean, these things really, truly have helped me. And What's opposite emotion? Doing exactly what the opposite of what you feel like doing. You feel like laying on the couch, closing the blinds and not answering your phone. Then you get up and you open the blinds and you call somebody. Wow. What's square breathing? In for four, hold oh. for four, exhale for four, repeat. Sounds more like a triangle to me. That's an equilateral triangle in my book. <laughs> okay, we'll call it that. I don't know what shape, but it doesn't matter. You could call it a square or a circle. I'm just saying. Anyhow, no one gives a shit about what I think about shapes. Um, what else would you like to share? For, I, I could talk forever about this stuff, but officially my questions, there are no more, but would you like to share anything else? Just to remind people to treat each other with compassion. We don't know what other people are dealing with. We all have something to offer. Every human being has something to offer, something to teach us. I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful my physical health is intact. Now it's just the riding out the system again. And what more can I do? I can reestablish my relationships with my sisters and be there for my nieces and nephews as much as I can be. And, um, and love, love, love everyone. Meet them where they're at and you know, I'm here, I'm helping other people while I'm here. And that's what makes me feel good. When you say love everyone, are you including the uh, people who work for insurance companies, some of the doctors? <laughs> at Is that, when you say everyone, do you mean everyone? I try. They're, you know, they're human beings too, yeah? you know, regardless of their profession. And I think, you know, most people that get involved in the mental health system are either directly affected themselves or somebody close to them. And I think that we all want to be treated well. And I think if we all learned how to love ourselves, you know, we wouldn't treat each other poorly. So many lives could be saved. You know, reach a hand out to someone struggling. Don't be that person that pushes them over the head. Did you get the sense sometimes that when you said so many, we, so many lives could be saved, do you get the sense sometimes that some people, and they're all people with their own challenges, I understand. Maybe they went into it for the right reasons or noble reasons. Do you get the sense that there are people who actually don't care if you live or not? I'll just say, I'll just say I yeah. do. It's a loaded question. I know. Yeah. I, I know I'm just another patient or another inmate or another, uh, another face. What I care about is the peers, my other, the other inmates here, you know, I've learned more from them than I do these force attendee groups, you know, um, yeah, for sure. Hearing other people talk about their, their stories. And I think the more we can, destigmatize and the more we can be real and have these difficult conversations with our loved ones and meet people where they're at sit with me and hold my hand and, and let me just talk just be kind to each other biggest lesson i've learned seems to be a challenge for many people including me and that was a very kind guy <laughs> try we try i know it's hard well thank you very much i'm glad we connected thank you for talking and being so open and honest and sharing your difficult things with people. Well, now with me, but eventually with others through this podcast. And it sounds like you'll be doing, if you can, some other stuff in terms of being open about it, talking about it. And uh, yeah, so cool. Yeah, Anything I can do, pay it forward whenever possible. You know? Awesome. I, I don't know ever how to end these things. And I also don't, I know you're in a particularly or somewhat precarious situation now, so I can only wish you that you get through it. And Thank you. United with your family and your nieces and they all nieces? You have nephews too, right? Nieces and nephews. Yep. Four of each. Just to hopefully just find some stability. Like you said, the basic needs at some point sooner than later, because it's got to be very, very difficult. So 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, my pleasure. Yeah, I'll keep you posted. I'll let you know how this uh, journey goes here. <laughs> Please do, because I can actually put that in the show notes and people are curious about stuff like that. They ask like, hey, how's so-and-so? So please do. Yeah, I think I got like six weeks left here and then I don't know my next stop yet. So Awesome. All right, Chantal. Thanks again. Thank you. You bet. Take care. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support and special thanks to Chantel up in Minnesota. Thank you, Chantel. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. Check the show notes for other ways you can reach out to us and ways you can support the podcast, even sponsor the podcast. However you participate, we really appreciate it. And that is all for episode number 134. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.